Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 7th of June, 2023, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish. We're delighted to be joined by our nursing correspondent, Debbie Evans. Well, we've got a polarised news today because two key issues we think are extremely important, events in Ukraine and uh, also what is happening with the health of the nation here in UK. But let's kick off with Ukraine. And first of all, we want to take our viewers back to 2017, when in a very global, um, a very muddy global pond, a UK column was starting to warn about events that we were seeing. And we wish to take our viewers and listeners back to have a look at what was happening there, because it uh, has a really interesting impact on what we're seeing in Ukraine in uh, Ukraine now. And of course, Mike, you picked up on this. This was the EU um, Eastern Partnership. So we've got a little video playing on screen if you're just uh, listening into the UK column today, um, taking place in Brussels with leaders from Armenia, Azerbaijan, Belarus, Georgia, Moldova, and of course, Ukraine. And they're going to be meeting their 28 counterparts at the very heart of the EU. And then this video clip takes us through uh, some of the things they're going to be doing, celebrating more mobility, more market access, more business, more connections, more security. That's an interesting one, because what did that actually mean at the time? And they're going to be looking ahead to define new joint projects, more climate action, more student exchanges, more access to finance, more digital transformation more reforms, and finally, the key bit, empowering the young generations, and that'll be a focus of the leaders' discussions. So how do you feel about that, seeing, seeing that again now, Mike? Well, uh, future leadership, uh, all about building new relationships as part of the expansion eastwards, of course, is putting pressure on Russia. Indeed. And of course, targeting in particular the youth, the student exchanges. Uh, this is all about breaking down the barriers of the nation state. So it was very clear that the EU was heavily targeting uh, the eastern states. And of course, the meetings followed. This is just one of many publicity pictures. So we've got um, Georgia meeting with the Ukrainian uh, president, and that's all looking rather wonderful. But UK Column was quickly warning what was coming. And uh, this was BBC News reporting that Theresa May was warning of hostile, of a hostile Russia threat to EU security. And in our turn, we said that basically what was going to happen was that Theresa May was launching Operation Barbarossa, the name for the uh, Nazi attack on Russia at the start of the Second World War. And of course, um, it was uh, the West that had an eye on Eastern European grain, uh, oil and technology. Now, that was not going back to World War II. We're talking about Theresa May and the Conservatives here. And we commented that the British Conservative Prime Minister was risking lives of millions of young Poles and Germans in her drive to war in Eastern Europe. Many poor people thought this was strong language at the time, but we were pretty convinced there was something nasty coming. And you commented here, Mike, from agriculture in Ukraine to the tech sector in Belarus, there is a huge amount of potential in the Eastern neighborhood that we should nurture and develop. This is, of course, a direct quote from Theresa May. But we must 
also be open-eyed to the actions of hostile states like Russia, which threaten this potential and attempt to tear our collective strength apart. So a lot of concern there that the Russians clearly not happy with what was happening and they were going to react. The UK may be leaving the EU, but we're not leaving Europe and we're unconditionally committed to maintaining Europe's security. And uh, then it moved on because here we've got the Telegraph, Britain to launch counter-propaganda war against Russia as Theresa May unveils the fusion doctrine defence plan. And uh, we uh, labelled this, helped for the BBC, the biggest propaganda machine the world has ever seen. Um, Theresa May unleashes her Barbarossa campaign against Russia with a propaganda war. So that had moved from 2017 into 2018. And if we jump forward uh, to 2023, obviously on Monday, we were reporting Tobias Elwood uh, here crowing that uh, the UK could use nudging in order to get other leaders, Western leaders, even the US, to devote more to the war in Ukraine. Uh, we had Ben Wallace, who was getting very excited um, that tens of thousands of young men could die. He was seemed to be quite happy that was going to be Russians. But of course, the reality is that it's mainly Ukrainians. And then he's complaining that you can't ma magic up tanks and weapon systems that they need. I just have to insert this little one, because if you have a look at what Ben Wallace is up to, uh, has been up to over the last day, um, he's glad handing the veterans at the D-Day celebrations over in France. And I just find this so cynical. If only those men knew what was really being cooked up by Ben Wallace's government. And uh, Mike, you picked out here Tobias Elwood, of course, crowing that we want more tanks, missiles and F-16s, a roadmap into NATO for Ukraine and an improved grain deal. Well, exactly. His main focus is on the grain. So, yeah. so this narrative has been running for five or six years now. Yeah. And people haven't been aware that it's been coming. No. So what we're trying to do today is bring this together so that people can see how this plan has unfolded. Uh, if we continue with uh, Tobias, of course, we also commented on Monday um, that he was saying that uh, basically because UK was taking the lead and stepping forward, it, it allowed, it encouraged others to then follow suit. And this is the UK government using its applied psychology on international partners to draw them deeper into the, the NATO proxy war against Russia. And you've got some more here, Michael. Well, yes, because it's a new uh, article from Yahoo News the mainstream starting to recognise who has actually been pushing the hardest uh, to maintain this war effort uh, in uh, Ukraine. And of course, it is the UK. So this headline here, how the UK helped convince the US and its allies to spend big to help Ukraine in its war with Russia. Uh, and just highlight a couple of quotes from this. Months before Russia launched its invasion on February the 24th, uh, the UK began flying plane loads of shoulder-launched anti-tank missile launchers, the Anglo-Swedish N-Law, uh, to Ukraine. At a time when doing so was highly controversial in Europe, the prevailing assumption on the continent was that Russia would overrun Kiev in days. Uh, and uh, they went on to say, London's bullishness, US and UK officials say, has had a galvanizing effect on Western Security Alliance in general. Speaking on condition of anonymity, a senior US diplomat told Yahoo News that the provision of storm shadows even helped break the White House's impasse on sending F-16 fighters. Now, the point here is, that if we look back over the last number of years uh, and we look at Syria, for example, 
the UK has led the way all the way. So, for example, if we look at it from the other side of the, the coin, when the UK decided not to bomb Ukraine in 2013, the United States decided that it wouldn't either because the UK had made that decision uh, already. So they weren't prepared to go alone. Uh, on the, we move forward to Ukraine. The UK, the UK is pushing the hardest uh, to make sure that this war continues and all the other uh, little vassal states who on the face of it seem to be superior, but from a sort of political or a geopolitical position aren't really because the UK is setting the policy and everybody's following. Yep, yep. So uh, F-16s there, um, let's uh, bring in a bit more on that. And of course, we've gone to the Kiev Independent here because they've got a couple of really interesting articles to do with jets. So the headline here is Zelensky, Ukraine to receive significant number of F-16 fighter jets. And if we just take a little bit of the text out, it says here that uh, Zelensky said during a press conference that Ukraine will receive a significant number of F-16 fighter jets based on discussions with European partners. And this is being reported by Suspilny. Now, let's just remember that the moment we look at Suspilny, this is a BBC media construct. So this is effectively a vassal of the BBC. You're not dealing with a clean Ukrainian report here because the BBC is uh, holding the hands of Suspilny in the background to make sure they say the right thing. Uh, But we can add uh, from the article, the president added that the deal still requires consent from the US, which manufactures F-16s, and no details or specifics are currently being disclosed. So the F-16s dangled in front of uh, of Ukraine. They're actually not going to change the course of the war. But of course, uh, Zelensky and the Ukrainian military getting very excited. Will the US say yes or no? Well, probably it's going to take the UK to convince the Americans to say yes. But then we've got another article from the Kiev Independent. Media Australia considers sending its F-18 fighter jets to Ukraine. Now, the Australians getting rid of these aircraft. A transfer would require permission from the US. So everything comes back to the US again, as it owns the intellectual property. Uh, But according to the report, Washington is favorably disposed to the idea. But actually, these aircraft are much like uh, the debate we've seen with the tanks, because it goes on to say the bulk of the planes would take little work to be brought up to flying conditions, while others can be cannibalized for scrap parts. So these are not uh, aircraft in the prime of their life. They're aircraft that have not been flying. Um, They're gonna take work to be brought up to flying condition, but let's uh, throw them onto the Ukrainians as a little sop to keep the Ukrainians fighting and dying in this uh, proxy war. Well, it's a gift that keeps on giving. (laughs) Absolutely, Mike. Because (laughs) otherwise we would have to spend millions of pounds decommissioning, scrapping, dealing with the uh, the, the scrap uh, metal, and instead we're just going to spread it around the landscape of Ukraine. It's fantastic. Uh, meanwhile, the defence industry, of course, gets the orders in for the uh, replacement aircraft. Uh, well, on the theme of the West, uh, moving on to cause trouble, uh, this is originally a Financial Times article. The headline was Serbia backs ammunition shipments to Ukraine in westward pivot, um, but it was taken up by Russia Today. 
and I'm using their dialogue here, but essentially what they're saying is that the West has begun criticizing, sorry, the West has begun criticizing Kosovo Albanians because Serbia agreed to look the other way as its ammunition is delivered to Ukraine. So what a remarkable coincidence that uh, we've got this trouble, um, pretty vicious rioting and uh, rebellion around Kosovo. Uh, but in the background, what can we see? The objective is to get more ammunition into Ukraine for more Ukrainians to die in the proxy war. And if we come on to the subject of tanks, it's pretty clear that that's not all going well. A little video clip here with a bit of comment on the American Abrahams tank. Let's listen to what this man says. The M1 Abrams tank is one of the most powerful ground weapons in the U.S. arsenal. Equipped with a 1,500 horsepower turbine engine and a top speed of more than 40 miles per hour, it comes with a 120 millimeter cannon, three machine guns, and armor that can withstand frontal hits from enemy tanks with minimal damage. And these tanks could help Ukrainian forces take back Russian-occupied territories. But Pentagon officials have expressed concerns that these tanks could pose major logistical issues for Ukraine. The Abrams requires a lot of support. And if the Ukrainians don't have everything that it takes to operate the Abrams, they might end up being more of a detriment than they are a help. So uh, a pretty black and white statement. We're going to offer you tanks. They're not really suitable for you. If you take them on, they can cause more problems than they're worth. So the Ukrainians being deceived here again by the West. And it's a little bit ironic that the Kiev Independent got quite hostile in an email exchange with the UK column because we were essentially warning them that Ukraine was going to be deceived and undermined by the West. So it's now becoming apparent with the aircraft, with the tanks, with the lack of munitions. Um, Ukraine is simply being asked to carry on and fight the offensive, but the West is not providing and cannot provide the arms that Ukraine needs. Uh, let's have a look at this Financial Times clip, which of course is promoting the idea of a Ukrainian offensive. For Ukraine and for the West. And the pressure's building. This is now the comeback. Expect news of the Ukrainians conducting a host of attacks. As Ukraine's long-awaited counter-offensive appears to have finally begun. What, what does Ukraine want to achieve? The Economist's Russia and Eastern European editor, Arkady Ostrovsky, gives his three key takeaways. President Zelensky has spoken that the full territorial integrity of Ukraine needs to be restored. That does mean moving all the way uh, to the borders of 1991. In practice, uh, I think there is a realization that Ukrainian army can possibly take quite a lot of territory to, uh, at the very least, to break the land bridge that connects Azov and, and the Black Sea and possibly get to the borders of Crimea. One of the key things, of course, is for Ukraine to um, be able to liberate and hold that territory, preventing any counteroffensive from Russia. Uh, well, you were smiling as that uh, piece was rolling on, Mike. And of course, it's quite ridiculous for the Financial Times to suggest that Ukraine is in this position, because as we're going to see, they have been fighting all along the front. 
uh, over the last few days. But of course, Western media not covering uh, the conflict because the Ukrainians have been doing extremely badly. Now, we've we've gone to the Russians for this report. Make no apology for that, because consistently in the war, the Russian reports have been more accurate than those coming out of Ukraine. And in any case, Ukraine is not reporting casualties. But here's a statement by the Russian Minister of Defense, uh, Shoigu. And let's have a look at the key paragraph here on 4th of June, 23rd and 34th. First mechanized brigades of the AFU attempting an offensive. The enemy did not succeed. 300 servicemen, 16 tanks, 26 armored fighting vehicles, and 14 uh, uh, motor vehicles were destroyed. It goes on to talk about the 5th of June uh, with even more losses 1,600 troops, 28 tanks, including eight Leopard tanks, three uh, French AMX 10 wheeled tanks, 136 other military vehicles, including 79 foreign manufactured one. And the video footage coming from the battle, which is, of course, widely available on social media, absolutely supports this level of losses as the Ukrainians came out from hiding into the open fields and were caught by anti-tank weapons. Uh, but the report continued. We'll just do a little bit more. All in all, during three days of fighting in all directions, the losses of the AFU amounted to 3,715 troops, 52 tanks, 207 armoured fighting vehicles, 134 motor vehicles, five aircraft, two helicopters, 48 pieces of field artillery, and 53 unmanned aerial vehicles. None of this, of course, being reported by the West. And if we sum up the battlefield at the moment, it's pretty appalling. So the counterattacks by Ukraine have failed with high casualties. The, the Russians have held with very few casualties. War dead for Ukraine, around 300,000, but this is widely regarded as a low estimate. 50,000 for the Russians regarded as a high estimate. Um, Ukraine left with 300,000 perhaps operational troops, some reserves, but limited quality as the professionals have been killed. Uh, meanwhile, Russia is ramping up for 1.2 million men, uh, uh, but 400,000 experienced troops. Ukraine, 90% of the air force destroyed. Uh, Russia, 100% operating. They have lost aircraft, but those have been replaced. Um, Ukraine, probably 30% of armoured vehicles left, but this is now a mix of Western obsolete equipment. Russians are at 100% strength on armoured vehicles with thousands in reserve. Air defences, Ukraine uh, down to 5 possibly 10% operational, and the recent US Patriots destroyed and damaged. Uh, the Russians, meanwhile, have a comprehensive air defence. Ammunition for Ukraine is in a very short supply. Uh, for the Russians, it is abundant. Uh, guided weapons on the Ukraine side are in short supply, but even the Western equipment, such as JDAMs and Storm Shadow from the UK, those Storm Shadow long-range missiles, uh, are not effective because they're being interfered with by the Russians. Meanwhile, the Russians have abundant guided weapons, and some of those are clearly world-beating in their abilities. Electronic warfare, insignificant on the Ukrainian side, but for the Russians, described by an American general during the Syria crisis as eye-watering, uh, Ukrainian co economy fully destroyed 
whereas, of course, the Russian economy, despite the sanctions, continues to operate. So this is the pitiful background. More Ukrainian dead in a proxy war for the US, UK, NATO and the EU to achieve its aims. And in the meantime, uh, James Cleverly, a couple of days ago, was in Kiev uh, to uh, keep the war going. Uh, here he is with uh, Zelensky. Uh, so he was there on Monday. Uh, Ukraine can count on our support, he said on Twitter, for as long as it takes. Thank you to President Zelensky and uh, Dmitry Kaleba for uh, welcoming me to Kiev. So uh, this is the fourth meeting uh, between Zelensky and senior UK ministers uh, in the last uh, few weeks. Uh, so then the following day, so I'll just give a quote first. He said, uh, and this uh, just is really insane. So anyway, he said forcibly deporting children. What he means is that the Russians have removed children from the war zone. Uh, and uh, if they want to call that forcibly de deporting children, that's fine. But it seems to me it's more about taking them out of to, to a place of safety. But anyway, raising cities like Bakhmut, Izium, and Mariupol to the ground and committing atrocities are not the acts of responsible international state. They're the actions of a hostile regime uh, that is in violation of the UN Charter. So uh, he's saying that uh, Russia has raised uh, Mariupol to the ground. Uh, well, let's just have a look at uh, one example of sheer propaganda that backs that up uh, from Sky News. Uh, Mariupol, Russia's new model city in Ukraine. And let's look at some of the uh, text here, a city destroyed. Uh, Mariupol has been turned to rubble twice, first by Russian missiles, then by Russian bulldozers. So uh, the fact that there's been a war and a conflict and that Russia is knocking down buildings that have been damaged or destroyed in that war and is then rebuilding them, uh, that's something to be vilified by the Western press. Of course, but this particular report makes me smile because here we are in Plymouth, UK column based in Plymouth. Plymouth badly bombed by the Germans during the Second World War. And uh, what happened at the end of the war, the city was rebuilt under the Abercrombie plan, um, which involved the local city council demolishing more buildings that the Luftwaffe demolished. So if you want a perfect example of uh, the same thing taking place in UK, Plymouth is, is the place to look at. So bringing that back on for a second, uh, now a model city is emerging. So Sky does recognize that uh, uh, Russia is rebuilding Mariupol. So regeneration happening. But anyway, coming back to uh, Cleverly for a second, he's talking about uh, uh, how we're going to reconstruct uh, Ukraine. So the following day, he met with uh, Mr. Kubella, uh, Kuleba, sorry, uh, and uh, this is all about uh, the Ukraine recovery conference and preparing for it, which we're going to talk about in one second. But in the meantime, then today, he is at the OECD, uh, all about Ukraine. Uh, he is there to galvanize global support and help Ukraine's reconstruction as it chairs the annual uh, Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development meeting in Paris today. Uh, so we are making sure that Ukraine has as many weapons as we can possibly send it so we can destroy as much of Ukraine as possible. But then we're going to uh, get involved in the reconstruction afterwards if the Russians don't do that first. But anyway, uh, so this is, uh, sorry, if we just, uh, sorry about that, we'll come on to this. Uh, Ukraine Recovery Conference is taking place in a couple of weeks' time, uh, and uh, it's in London, of course. Uh, UK, jointly with Ukraine, will host the Ukraine Recovery Conference, uh, and this is all about uh, 
Well, what is it about? It's about money, Mike. Of this course. It's about money and profit, vast profits, which is why uh, previously we've shown those video clips of the banks. Citibank, I believe, was one of them getting very excited at the idea of huge investment into Ukraine. Um, so let's move on to NATO. You got a quick preview of this one. But uh, Operation Balltops has uh, begun, 2023 has begun a couple of days ago. So uh, this is NATO reporting that U.S. Sixth Fleet Naval Striking and Support Forces, NATO Kickoff Balltops 2023. So what are we talking about here? Uh, this is the premier maritime-focused exercise in the Baltic region, uh, beginning in uh, Tallinn, Estonia. Uh, 20 nations, 50 ships, 45 aircraft, 6,000 personnel are participating this year from Belgium, Canada, Denmark, Estonia, Finland, France, Germany, Italy, Latvia, Lithuania, the Netherlands, Norway, Poland, Portugal, Romania, uh, Spain, Sweden, Turkey, and the United Kingdom, and the United States, of course. Sweden joins as a partner. Finland joins for the first time as a full member of NATO. Uh, but if we just go back one year, we've got to remember the claim by Seymour Hersh that has never actually been convincingly denied by anyone in the West, uh, that Baltox 22 was used as the cover for the uh, blowing up of the Nord Stream pipeline. Uh, and so my question then, Brian, is what's 2023 going to be? Used as cover for? Well, I hate to think. I hate to think with what we're we're seeing build at the moment, Mike. Now, on Monday we mentioned uh, that uh, Ben Wallace, our fantastic defence secretary, is in the running for uh, the secretary generalship of NATO, uh, and Rishi Sunak is heading off to the United States today, uh, and uh, he's going to meet uh, President Biden if he's awake. Uh, so meeting with the President of the United States, members of Congress and business leaders, the PM's focus on strengthening the alliance to fuel growth in our economies, create jobs and keep our people safe long into the future. That's what he was tweeting, or number 10 was tweeting out this morning. Uh, but uh, on the grapevine, uh, a very big part of what he's going to be doing in Washington over the next day or two is, uh, well, lobbying for Ben, lobbying for Ben to become uh, uh, Secretary General of NATO, and uh, so we can ramp the war up even even absolutely. faster, and, and, yeah. be the, and and UK control of NATO effectively. Now, uh, this is essentially a presidential decision, uh, the Secretary Generalship of NATO, which is why uh, Ben was setting out a stall, stall, as we reported on Monday's program in the Washington Post, uh, and this is a follow up to that. So, uh, well, we'll keep you posted on how it goes. All right. Well, we just end this segment uh, with. Uh, well, this report, now I took this from the Ministry of Defence Twitter page. I, I find this just appalling. It says, Ukrainian military chaplains receive two weeks of training from British Army chaplains, enhancing their ability to provide pastoral care, spiritual support and moral guidance during military operations. What is so unpleasant about this is that it's the Ukrainians um, who are arresting clergy, in quite brutal ways in Ukraine and destroying the churches in Ukraine. And yet the image being sold by the MOD propaganda team to the British public is that this is all love, light and spirituality. I, f I find this really obscene uh, by the Ministry of Defence, but of course they know no bounds in the area of propaganda as far as Ukraine is concerned. Meanwhile, the West simply 
well, they were ignoring, but maybe it's beginning to hit the press. This is New York uh, Times. Nazi symbols on Ukraine's front lines highlight thorny issues of history. Uh, just very quickly, since Russia began its invasion of Ukraine in February 2022, the Ukrainian government and NATO allies have posted then quietly deleted three seemingly innocuous photographs from their social media feeds, a soldier standing in a group, another resting in a trench, and an emergency worker posing in front of a truck. In each photograph, the Ukrainians in uniform wore patches featuring symbols that were made notorious by Nazi Germany and have since become part of the iconography of far-right hate groups. Uh, the photographs and their deletions highlight the Ukrainian military's complicated, it's a complicated relationship, Mike, with Nazi imagery, a relationship forged under both Soviet and German occupation during World War II. Uh, Ukraine has worked for years through legislation and military restructuring to contain a fringe far-right movement whose members proudly wear symbols steeped in Nazi history and espouse views hostile to leftists, LGBTQ movements and ethnic minorities. But some members of these groups have been fighting Russia since the Kremlin illegally annexed part of the Crimea region in 2014 and are now part of the, quote, broader military structure. Some are regarded as national heroes, even as the far right remains marginalised politically. Well, it's breaking to the surface again, of course, the Nazi component of the Ukrainian armed forces. Uh, but to suggest that uh, politically it's been dealt with is nonsense, because, of course, the country, the Ukraine as a country at the moment, is being run by what is essentially a military government. So uh, interesting to see the Ukraine. New York Times starting to get a bit uppity about this, and I predict that further reports are going to come. But we just end on this while Ukraine is taking place in the way it is. Sky News here reporting that RAF recruiters were against selecting, quote, useless white male pilots uh, so that they could hit diversity targets. Well worth reading this article. So, of course, um, we've got a conservative party where democracy inside the party has been uh, destroyed, so it's operating as a cabal. We've got British conservative politicians ramping up the war against Russia while they're destroying our armed forces at home. Again, just vicious hypocrisy, Mike, and uh, obviously uh, the public need to understand more of this plan. Okay, let's move on. If you like what the UK Column does, you would like to support us, uh, please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. There are options to help us out there. You can pick something up at the UK Column shop, uh, but please do share anything you find on the various platforms, especially ukcolumn.org and ukcolumnextracts.co.uk. Okay, thank you for that. Well, we just um, uh, give people a reminder that the interview that I did with Sandy Evans a couple of days Adams. ago, Adams, yes, Sandy, Sandy Adams, Adams yeah. sorry, uh, is available on UK Column website. Do have a look at that because uh, it was a very interesting interview. We covered a lot of topics. It was very enjoyable. Mariana Spring got a mention. So if you haven't actually seen that interview, go and have a look. Uh, uh, we've got a, an advertisement for a 15-minute city uh, event happening in Swindon, Regent Street, Saturday the 10th of June. This coming Saturday, 12.30 p.m. Pierce Corbin, Debbie Hicks. Uh, Paul Burgess, Andy Osborne, uh, Catherine Armitage, Jasmine speaking, more speakers to be confirmed. Uh, it's all about uh, 
leafleting and uh, public conversation and so on. So do get along to that if you're in the area. And of course, one, one of the things Sandy was talking about is how people are stepping forward now to challenge local um, councils, in particular town councils, to inform them about the 15-minute cities and to get people active in saying, no, we don't want this. Mm-hmm. Now, we've got an advert for an interview, which is uh, going to be tomorrow at uh, one o'clock. Uh, this is um, David Scott with John Waters. Um, title is The Root of All Evil. John Waters has been doing a lot of really good work there in Ireland exposing what's been happening in the globalist agenda. And I'm sure this is going to be a very good interview to watch as well. Okay, uh, thank you to everybody that wrote, and quite a lot of you did, uh, about the Digital Pound uh, consultation, the uh, Central Bank Digital Currency consultation, which I incorrectly said on Monday's programme ended uh, today, in fact. Um, so uh, let's just bring up what the Bank of England has said on this. On the 1st of June, the original deadline of the 7th of June was extended due to the omission of the following question from the online response form. And the question is, do you have comments on a proposal that non-UK residents should have access to the digital pound on the same basis as UK residents? Uh, and that's going to be question nine on the consultation paper. Uh, this extension provides respondents, including those who have already submitted a form with additional time to consider and respond. So uh, there's still time to do that. So thanks to everybody that uh, gave me a hard time about uh, getting that one uh, not quite right. But anyway, okay, let's move on. More digital. More digital. Now, I just wanted to highlight this story, and it seems a little innocuous on the uh, on the face of it, but this is uh, from Kent Online, and the headline is Southeastern, and they're talking about Southeastern Railways, Southeastern ticket inspectors leave Mayfield Grammar School student in tears after accusing her of lying about her age. So this is a, a young uh, lady called uh, uh, Leila Sanger, who is 14, uh, and she was traveling on a children's ticket, uh, and she was stopped by two people that are working for Southeastern uh, t- ticket inspectors, uh, and uh, they gave her a £100 fine because they believed she was 15, and she couldn't demonstrate. They claimed that she, uh, her age... Uh, Sorry, over... She was over. They, no, thought, she, they thought she was 15. So in oh, fact, she was 14 and she was okay. 15. Then that required her to be on an adult ticket. Right. Thank okay. You. So, uh, anyway, Southeastern has made a statement uh, about this incident because it wasn't just the fact that they uh, were hassling her about her age. It was also the fact that there's a claim uh, that uh, they were uh, took her phone from her and were looking at her text messages. That's, that's a separate issue. But anyway, let's have a look at the statement from uh, Southeastern. Uh, they said, we can confirm a penalty fare was cancelled, but we do not routine comment, uh, routinely comment on ongoing investigations. So the mother complained and eventually they dropped the penalty fare. But they went on to say, uh, we also believe it's reasonable to ask for proof of age if a younger customer looks older than 15 and ask for a child fare. Now, we need to make the point here that she had not only her school's student lanyard, school ID around her neck, she also had a Southeastern Railways ID card as well. So that's not sufficient anymore to prove your age a Southeastern, uh, for Southeastern to have their own ID card. That's not sufficient. So they go on to say, to avoid any unnecessary confusion, we recommend carrying an official proof of age, such as a citizen card or a valid UK card. So what are we seeing here? We're starting to see uh, private co- corporations not recognizing certain types of identification. This is going to go further. Uh, and I'm going to say that what we're seeing here is uh, the... Uh, the, the problem that's going to create the, the solution, which is digital ID. This is on the way, and we're going to see more and more of these types of headlines in the coming 
uh, months and years. Yeah, and as I've said to you, Mike, I find this story particularly interesting because many years ago, in an interesting part of my life, I worked in a train call centre, Trans Pennine Express, and regularly I was hearing... Uh, uh, travellers talking about unpleasant experiences with what was called the revenue protection officers. Uh, so I think we can we can have very interesting dialogue about this and what's been happening on the railways at least. Um, I just want to very briefly mention Professor Arnie Burkhardt again because uh, we mentioned on Friday his passing. Uh, we didn't know the circumstances of that at the time. Now we apparently do. And in fact, uh, we just got to say what a fantastically brave man, because what actually happened, we'll just do a quick translation of this headline uh, from the German press. Um, he uh, effectively jumped into this lake in order to uh, help save his son who, who, was, who was in trouble in the lake. And unfortunately, he did not survive the, uh, the effort to save his son. His son was eventually saved by uh, local people in a, in a small boat. Um, so I just wanted to uh, highlight that and just say what, what a, a good man, man what a good this, man this, this was yes now let's get on to health issues and very briefly i just want to highlight again and ask debbie for comments uh, the latest all-cause mortality statistics because if we look at this this graph as it's building uh, as, as if we look from the middle of 2021 onwards we are seeing huge quantities of uh, excess mortality month after month after week after week after week in fact uh, and Debbie, this is not being solved, and yet there doesn't seem to be any concern from anybody in the mainstream press. We see the occasional article from time to time, but no demands uh, about dealing this the way that we had demands about dealing with uh, potential excess mortality as a result of COVID-19. Uh, this just continues to, to uh, cause me difficulty because in the meantime, we're uh, gathering all kinds of genomic information and it seems to me that what's happening is we're just data gathering and not really caring too much about whether people are really living or dying. Um, yeah, good afternoon. Um, and yes, you're exactly spot on, Mike. This is all to do with genomic sequencing, tracking, tracing, surveillance. And that's what we're going to come on to. And, and my apologies, I'm on a different device. So if I look as though I'm in a cave, I'm really not. It's just that the camera quality on the laptop is a bit different. So apologies for that. So let's just jump in and see what's happening with the WHO and also sequencing, genomic sequencing and tracking and tracing. So I discovered this document, Strengthening the Global Architecture for Health Emergency Preparedness, Respondents, response and resilience. Now, I have to say very quickly, the H-E-P-R-R -R there, the Health Emergency Preparedness, Response and Resilience, that is a whole new department of its own. And we will come on to that in future newses. But just to make you aware that that's another department within the WHO. Now, I found four scenarios for the future of pandemics and epidemics in the next three to five years. And I just want to highlight that this isn't, we're not just talking about pandemics here, we're talking about epidemics. And for those of um, our members who are going to be able to join us for extra, that will all make much more sense if you if you are able to join us for extra, because I have got some questions I'd like to ask our audience. But this is all to do with the expanded One Health surveillance. And these scenarios, well, let's have a look at them. There are four very, very short ones. Um, and I have to say the titles, well, 
I'll let you be the judge of the titles. Let's look at scenario number one, Happy Days. Through collaboration, focus, determination, community empowerment and hard work, humanity was able to manage the pandemic. Annual booster shots, combined with vaccinations for the flu, ensure that mortality rate from COVID-19 is very small and no higher than the mortality rate of other pathogens. In 2024, the WHO helped prevent the outbreak of another novel coronavirus in Eastern Europe, quickly containing the outbreak and preventing international spread. In 2025, the second generation of vaccines managed to completely contain virus transmission. Other vaccines delivered in pill form further enabled enhanced distribution, reach and affordability. False information about the pandemic is effectively countered and nations and healthcare organisations operate based on coordinated common truth campaigns with consistent scientific messaging and guidance. None of the progress that was made following the COVID-19 outbreak would have been possible without a spirit of science-driven decision-making and strategic collaboration between nations worldwide. Debbie, coordinated common truth campaigns, that's propaganda. <laughs> Excuse me. And well, that's only, that's only scenario one, Mike. I mean, we have to make up our minds which scenarios we're going to. So with that in mind, let's flip to scenario two. I love you. I hate you. The virus remains and it's evolving. Humanity has gradually learned to live with the virus, yet still clings to pre-pandemic behaviours and approaches. New variants appear frequently, which the first generation of vaccines are ineffective against. Through constant testing and continually updated vaccines, the WHO and some countries managed to prevent several additional pandemic waves. But affordability and reliability of rapid tests are still an issue. Trust in governments and public institutions varies across the world. Some attribute the protracted nature of the pandemic solely to the inability of their leaders to make rapid, informed and inclusive decisions. The boundaries between digital and physical environments are blurred, with hybrid ways of working, meeting and learning now the norm. Nations are still heavily reliant on fossil fuels, and deforestation prevention has not met the desired targets. Wow. So that's scenario two. Sorry, did you want to comment there, gentlemen? Uh, I only just said, wow. I disagree that there's trust, var trust of governments varies across the world. It's clearly at rock bottom wherever you go. But yeah, go ahead. Well, let's, let's flip forward to scenario three, Heartbreak Hotel. The COVID-19 pandemic is not over, and the virus has evolved, becoming even more infectious. New, more threatening variants emerge frequently, leaving vaccine manufacturers struggling to keep up. Long COVID-19 symptoms are the norm for almost everyone who gets infected, putting a significant strain on economies, productivity and healthcare systems. Each nation focuses their efforts on different fronts, some focus on measures to inform and educate the public in efforts to reduce transmission, 
While others focus on reopening their economy, barely able to support their overburdened health systems. Vaccines are the only treatment and prevention option, but access to them depends on the region and country. A large part of the global population is still unvaccinated, with vaccine nationalism and vaccine distribution bias against some minority groups on the rise. The world is suffering from the lack of a unified front to battle the worsening climate emergency. The WHO and the UN are no longer a forum of transparent discussion and collaboration. And finally, scenario four, here comes trouble. In addition to a worsening COVID-19 pandemic, a Zika-like vector-borne virus carried by mosquitoes spreads throughout the world. Nations struggle to establish public health measures that do not contradict each other. There is widespread confusion and conflicting priorities about what to do to protect from COVID-19 and the new virus. Given the inability of governments to inform, people turn to those who would provide reassurance during the double pandemic. Trust in society and science has never been lower. Due to intense border restrictions, the aviation and tourism industries have collapsed. People abandon towns in areas with high mosquito density and move to other areas, causing a strain on infrastructure. Healthcare systems, affected by rising cases, backlogs and staff shortages, find it nearly impossible to cope. Those with higher incomes can afford better care at better staffed facilities. Overall, environmental degradation is accelerating. Species go extinct, and those who survive will be the carriers for the next pandemic. So yesterday, Steve Barclay was talking to Tedros, and they were having a big meeting. And you probably, many of our viewers and listeners will already know that the global vaccine passport agenda is very much on. So which scenario do you think we're heading for? Or maybe a little bit of all of it? Or are we seeing it right now? Yeah. Well, sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, I think we're probably going to see a little bit of all of it. I mean, there's quite a visceral response to that in the chat box. And, and a lot of people uh, saying, uh, questioning, how could anybody fall for this stuff? Uh, and of course, the reason that people are falling for it is because of the sheer determination by the mainstream press to bombard everybody with so much of this type of material. Now, for can, can I just add to yes. that, Mike? But it's also in cartoon format. So it's specifically targeted at children. And what you're, what you're doing is reframing children to believe this nonsense. So a couple, couple of our members of our audience have said, why is the UK column showing you this? We're showing you this because this is the propaganda that's being targeted at the minds of our children, our grandchildren, both in the UK and, and, and of course in countries worldwide. We need to show this because this is the attack. And we're hoping that perhaps it might motivate a few people to to stand up, yeah, challenge it. Challenge it. So, okay, Debbie. Yeah, and I'd like to say too, I think what we're trying to show is that a lot of this agenda is surveillance. It's knowing where we are, what we're doing, 
what we're eating, how our bodies are working. This is all about surveillance. And we're coming straight on to the O'Shaughnessy review. And we've talked about this before, but the government gave a response last week. And I just wanted to, to highlight it because the O'Shaughnessy review actually gives the green light to the MHRA to do pretty much what they want. So let's have a look and see what the O'Shaughnessy review is actually about. You can see there that the Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency Health Research Authority. Now, the HRA, I'm just going to highlight that in brackets because we'll come. We'll talk about that at a future date. But that, again, is another organisation within the NHS that most people haven't heard about. So this is a collaboration between the MHRA and the Health Research Authority and other system leaders should set up a rapid task and finish group to produce a plan on reducing the regulatory burden of approving trials and removing delays in setup, including with the goal of reaching a 60 day turnaround time for all approvals. Now, it also says at the bottom there, recommendation five, the MHRA the HRA and the NIHR and its equivalent organisations across the UK should collect, consolidate and publish national monthly returns on all the clinical trials activity that is happening in the NHS and NHS bodies and commercial sponsors should publish numbers of patients in trials on a monthly basis. Now, I just want to look very, very quickly a little bit deeper into the O'Shaughnessy review. And I've got another slide and I've underlined the most important, well, I mean, the whole report, to be honest, people need to go and look at. But I've underlined a little bit there that says the UK was ranked fourth in the number of commercial phase one trials initiated in 2021 behind the USA, China and Australia. The UK's ranking fell to 10th for commercial phase three trials. We have heard from industry that the UK is viewed as an unreliable and unpredictable partner. Our approvals processes are theoretically competitive, but inconsistent because of backlogs at the MHRA and unnecessary site level approval processes, which create delays. One major global pharmaceutical company that submitted evidence to the review said that of the 16 European countries in which it carried out research, the UK was the second slowest for setting up clinical trials. This is clearly unacceptable for a country with our resources and ambitions. And then it went on to say, given the need for efficient and fast review of trials, the HRA's new fast track service offers a 50% faster ethics approval to provide a consistent and efficient approval process. This has been shown to substantially reduce the period for ethics approval with a median time of 16 days in August 2022 and 27 days in September 2022. In March 2023, the MHRA also set new targets for application reviews within a maximum of 30 days in general, with a maximum 10 calendar days for a decision to be granted, granted once the regulator has any final information. Now, this is accelerating things very quickly, and this O'Shaughnessy review has basically given the MHRA the green light to speed everything up, and we know that they're desperate to get your data from clinical trials. So I've been looking at what GPs have been doing just recently. 
And in GP, you'll see there that GPs could now be incentivized to recruit patients onto commercial clinical trials. Also, in the evening standard, we found out that how many, uh, 246,000 Londoners have taken part in research in 2022 to 2023. That's a huge figure for one area, and it's been supported by the NIHR, of course, and these are volunteers. So what else are they doing at GP surgeries? Well, they're doing new cancer testing, but these cancer testing that this is this is a tablet on a piece of string that you swallow um, and in 20 minutes what they do is it, it's a little sponge and it inflates in your tummy and then they pull it back out and they're taking cells from your esophagus for genomic screening of course it's called the cyto sponge so these are new tests that are being rolled out in our gp surgeries which can be done in about 20 minutes We've also got Moderna rolling out trials with GP surgeries. And we've got, thank you for all the viewers um, that sent me this, the Wandsford and King's Cliff practice are to hold a Moderna COVID vaccine trial. These are GPs now taking part in COVID vaccine trials. It says it's the trial is open to people at least 12 years old who have already received a COVID-19 vaccine. And if over 18 at least one booster dose. So they're looking for as many people to take place in the next COVE study. Now I went to look at the next COVE study and I just want you to see what the um, trial is all about. This is a clinical trial of an investigational COVID-19 vaccine for adults and teens over 12. It says you or your child, along with 8,472 other individuals, will be helping researchers learn more about Moderna's latest investigational vaccine that may protect people, may, I should highlight there, may protect people from getting sick if they come into contact with the virus, if they come into contact with the virus in inverted commas. You or your child's participation could contribute to a potential solution to the evolving COVID-19 pandemic, which has affected the entire world. Now, if you just flip on again, it'll show you the eligibility criteria and it'll show you what to expect. And you're looking at a study which will last for 13 months. And you're looking also for this investigational vaccine may be given or it could be the original Moderna vaccine, but you're not to know which one it will be. So you or your child will be chosen at random to receive either the investigational booster dose of mRNA 1283222 or mRNA 1273222, and they'll compare. Now, these are for children these are children over the age of 12 and I think it's absolutely terrifying and the number of trials that are ongoing at the moment I think we all need to just ask some questions to our GPs ask the question and find out if you're comfortable with the answers so ask is your data being shared who's it being shared with is your GP practice a clinical research practice? Many of them have signed up 
to become clinical research practices. Now, that's slightly different from the next question, which is, is my GP surgery signed up to the MHRA? Clinical practice research data link, the CPRD. CPRD is different from a clinical research practice. So just because your surgery is signed into the clinical research practice doesn't mean to say it's necessarily signed in to CPRD as well. So check, ask if you are participating in a clinical trial that you are unaware of. Also possibly ask, are you receiving any new novel experimental drugs, tests or therapies that haven't gone through long-term safety data. Please ask these questions. Do you receive any financial or other incentives to participate in research and data sharing? GPs clearly are being incentivized. So are they receiving any financial incentives? And if so, what? Or maybe they're getting sabbaticals or holidays or I don't know. Ask if they're receiving anything. Have they signed any non-disclosure agreements? Now, I know that a lot of GP surgeries have, um, and maybe you'd like to ask your GP surgery, have they signed into any non-disclosure agreements? And if so, who with? And perhaps ask, what happens to your data, the specimens that you're giving, your DNA effectively, your confidential medical information? Where is that? actually going? Does does anybody know? Is anybody asking the questions? Because I really do believe that people need to be just asking questions of where your data is going, because clearly this is surveillance. I looked into one more um, trial that's currently going on at the moment called Heal COVID, um, which is a trial looking at long COVID. Um, and there's a lot more to come on long COVID. And you can see the collaboration there with the NIHR, University of Cambridge, University of Liverpool, plenty of other names. And, and lastly, finally, on this particular segment, I just want to end with, um, for many years now in England, we've all been opted in to transplant and organ donation. But as of the 1st of June, um, I might need your help here, Mike, on the pronunciation, as this is Northern Ireland. Um, but as of the 1st of June, all adults in Northern Ireland will now be considered potential organ donors unless they choose to opt out or are in an excluded group. Now, this opt-out clause, these opt-out clauses are called sludge techniques. Unlike nudge techniques, they're called sludge. So that's just a heads up for those of you in Northern Ireland. Sorry, I do apologize. Uh, that's okay. Um, uh, just a button issue in the studio. Uh, just wanted to say, Debbie, thank you very much for taking us through that. It, it, very, very interesting, and it should be immensely worrying to any right-thinking person in UK, um, particularly that we are experimenting on children 12 and above. Uh, but the questions that you put on screen, we're going to encourage our audience to go back, have a look at um, this news when it's posted on the website. Um, we'll make sure you can find Debbie's questions easily, and we hope that you will consider using these in order to, one, protect yourself, but also to find out more about what is going on in the NHS and the GP surgery. So we're going to say 
A big thank you for that, Debbie. We're also going to say that we'll hold the I section because we know you've got some um, some really um, dynamite reports on what's been happening around people's eyes and damage to eyes, but we'll hold that for another news. Um, so we, we're going to end at the moment, but we'll just end on this uh, one. Well, it's a report, but I couldn't resist it really. Let's pop it on screen and see what it says. UK's top spy mistakes parody Twitter account for real. MI6 Chief Richard Moore failed to notice that Turkey's new foreign minister does not have a real Twitter profile. The head of the UK's foreign intelligence service, Richard Moore, has revealed that he does not pay much attention to profile descriptions on Twitter after he accidentally tagged a parody account of Turkey's new foreign minister, Mr. Fadan. In a late Sunday tweet, Moore set out a congratulatory message to Fadan, wishing my friend and former colleague good luck in his new position as a minister in Erdogan's new cabinet. However, Moore seemingly failed to realise that his friend never had a Twitter account and he linked to a parody profile in the message, which was quickly pointed out to the top spy by dozens of net citizens. Uh, he did then post, a, oh, I've made a mistake. Um, but um, does it tell us about the people that are currently apparently protecting us? Did they I've ever described him us? as a donkey, but uh, yes. maybe that's a little bit unkind. I'm not sure they ever protected us. <laughs> Richard Dearlove certainly didn't protect us when he... Uh, no. Started talking about yellow cake, but anyway, let's. Uh... Uh, interestingly, that was reported by uh, Russia Today, uh, but the other location I found it on was uh, the New Zealand Telegraph. Now, whether it's appeared in uh, Western press or UK press, I don't know, but I could imagine these. Are, this is one of the stories that uh, they wouldn't want to report to save um, the embarrassment. Mm. Okay, we'll leave leave it there. Debbie, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you to everybody who's joined us today to listen or watch the news. Uh, now, I'm going to say two things. One in the extra time coming up in a couple of minutes. Uh, Debbie is going to be taking us through some particular issues to do with health and medical matters. And she's specifically going to be asking for help from UK column viewers. So if you can join us in that members extra um, segment, we'd be delighted to see you. And we're also going to say that over a number of weeks, we've hinted that we've got good news for our audience. And Wednesday next week, we will be having a special extra time to take you through what's happening with UK Column in the future. We think this is immensely exciting and uh, we could never have done it without all of the help that our members have given. So if you can remember to join us Wednesday next week for UK Column Extra, uh, we've got lots of good news to share with you. We'll end there. Uh, we'll be back in a couple of minutes for today's extra time. Thanks for joining us. Bye-bye.